Hey Conjurers, I'm Sham. And I'm Steph. Have you ever wondered what the adoption process used to be like in the 1800s? These days you have to go through years of applications, child protective services, opened or closed options, and in the end you still may not qualify or be able to adopt that baby you were longing for. Well, once upon a time, adopting a baby was as easy as going to the local corner store and checking out a bag of potatoes. Today, I want to tell you of one of England's most infamous killers who earned the name the Redding Baby Farmer. In the 1800s, having a baby out of wedlock made them illegitimate. Even if the parents later married, the child would still be considered illegitimate. Back then, having a baby out of wedlock was one of the worst things a woman could do. In 1834, a law was passed and it stated that fathers of illegitimate children weren't responsible for maintaining care for their offspring. This law put all the moral, economic, and legal responsibility on the mother of the child, with no help from the child's biological father. It was truly one of the worst times to be a woman, let alone a mother, whether by choice or by accident. Amelia Elizabeth Hobley was born in 1836 in a small village near Bristol. She was the daughter of a master shoemaker, making her family well-off and not a product of poverty like most of those in her generation. She was taught how to read and write and enjoyed literature and poetry. She chose a career in nursing, and though at the time it was a grueling job, it was one of the most respected in her community. In 1872, Amelia married a brewer's laborer from Bristol named William Dyer. The couple would go on to have two children together. Mary Ann, who they called Polly, and William Samuel. During her career as a nurse, Amelia grew tired of the lack of money her job was providing. In 1869, at the age of 31, she placed her first ad in the newspaper. In her ad, it read, Adoption apartments for a lady during confinement. Every comfort and attention. Child may be adopted. To sum it up, Amelia was offering a discreet lodging house for pregnant women, and they would be allowed to stay at Amelia's home until the birth of their child. This would give young women the opportunity to go through the months of pregnancy in peace by remaining out of the public eye, also known as baby farming. Right, because it's only the woman's fault for having a baby out of wedlock. The man had nothing to do with that. There was just a shit ton of immaculate conception happening back then. <laughs> Men have been punishing women for the natural reproduction process forever and still are to this day. At this rate, I can see some states dealing with this all over again in 2021, to be honest. What the hell is baby farming exactly? Baby farming allowed young women who were single mothers or widows to work while their children were being looked after by a caretaker. It was also extremely lucrative for the caretakers. Some women were willing to pay $5 to $10 a week for their child's care, which is equivalent to $216 today. However, if a woman wanted to remove that child from their care altogether, they would be willing to have the woman or couple adopt their child for a one-time payment and box of clothing. This system put into place wasn't exactly legal, and instead of providing infants and children with a safe home to grow up in that surrounded them with love and affection, it led to something more sinister. Caretakers started to realize that it would be easier to get rid of the adopted child altogether and continue collecting the money up front. After all, they knew most of these young women wouldn't be able to check on their children or have the means to get them back. As baby farming became more popular, so did authorities' suspicions of it. 
As they did more digging into the matter, they found out babies that were born were often sent off to a central location and starved to death for easy disposal. Mothers who had given their children to Amelia to adopt started questioning if their babies were okay. This led Amelia to leaving the business, removing her ads from the paper, and started making an honest living in order to get the attention off of her. She even went as far as changing her name to Miss Harding. That was until her husband, William, lost his job in 1877, and in order to support her family, Amelia returned to her career in baby farming. Amelia's home would once again be filled with expectant mothers, newborn babies, and children. Whether they were being delivered in the home or they were being adopted by Amelia and brought into the home. However, children began dying of what Amelia claimed to be natural causes. She even went as far to give some of the babies away to other women in their near-death state. It didn't take long for people to start raising their eyebrows and authorities to start growing concern. They decided to step in when one doctor reported the number of child deaths coming from her home. It didn't help that Amelia was also breaking the law because she wasn't actually a registered caregiver under the 1872 Child Care Act. On the 26th of August of 1879, the authorities showed up on Amelia's doorstep to arrest her for gross negligence and sentence her to six months of hard labor. Okay, that sounds horrible. Amelia sounds like a really awful person. She could have made money loving the children and taking good care of them like she promised. But no, she decided to neglect them. Yeah, I'm sure there were other ways to make money besides taking multiple innocent lives. But at least she was caught. So obviously prison was a little different back then. What exactly was hard labor? Well, hard labor back in the 1800s consisted of sleeping on hard wooden benches, cleaning, cooking, and picking oakum daily. Picking oakum was used as punishment in prison and workhouses as a way of able-bodied inmates earning their board and lodging. Prisoners serving hard labor would cut the rope into two foot-long lengths and then strike it with a heavy mallet to remove any hard tar in which it was coated in. Most of the time, they weren't able to use any tools besides their hands. This led to a draining task that ultimately caused their hands and fingers to bleed. In February of 1880, Amelia was released from prison, but it was clear the experience changed her. She looked older and she looked broken. The last place she ever wanted to end up again was behind bars. She attempted to live an honest life, but she just wasn't satisfied with making less when she had a taste for making more. During this time, Amelia grew an addiction, not just to the lifestyle of baby farming, but to painkillers, specifically a drug called laudanum. It is a drug you could buy over the counter that was a mix of opium and alcohol. Since aspirin and Tylenol weren't invented yet, laudanum had many uses, such as a sleeping aid, painkiller, and sedative. Since the drug was often abused, it led to an opium epidemic for middle and upper class white Americans in the 1800s. Amelia claimed to use it for toothaches, but she abused it so much to the point she was drinking two bottles a day and it didn't even affect her. It seemed like she was using it more as a coping mechanism to deal with her anxiety of getting caught. Great. She was already greedy, and then she became an addict, which is only going to make her desire for money worse. It probably numbed her heartless ass even more. Wasn't she worried about going back to prison? Of course, but Amelia was intelligent. She knew the prison system because she had firsthand experience, and she knew what a mental institute had to offer because she worked there as a nurse. In an asylum, she would get three meals a day, quiet, and plenty of rest. In prison, she would once again be subjected to hard labor. It was clear she suffered from some form of anxiety, but she may have been putting on a show as far as the severity of it. 
Being around patients with serious mental illnesses, she knew how they moved and she knew exactly what she needed to do to be admitted into an asylum. She also knew what most doctors considered as a cured patient that could potentially be released back into society. She had herself admitted twice to ensure she had a trail she could go back to if needed. Ooh, that's sneaky. Oh, yeah. And as time went on, Amelia's business was becoming more demanding. So she recruited a 70-year-old widow who lost three children prior to her husband's death named Jane Smith, who was given the name Granny to care for babies Amelia adopted. Jane worked at a workhouse that was an extremely exhausting job. So when Amelia offered her home to Jane and promised they would build a sisterly bond caring for each other and precious babies, Jane naively jumped on this opportunity. Soon after taking the job, Jane realized Amelia had misled her, but she had nowhere else to go. More babies were coming into the home than she could care for on her own, and the food Amelia provided to her to give to them wasn't enough. She genuinely did care for these babies, but she found herself growing weary after putting a baby to sleep one night and waking up in the morning to find that that baby was missing on several occasions. I feel bad for Jane, but no matter what might happen to your livelihood, babies need to be protected. I know she was elderly, so maybe she felt like if she said something, Amelia would have been able to overpower her and kill her too. Oh, that's a good point. But still, how did Amelia explain the disappearances? The story Amelia would tell Jane is that she took the babies back to their mothers who had found the means to take care of them again, or she found another caregiver to take on the child. It's unclear if Jane fully believed her or willingly did just for the sake of avoiding going back to the workhouse. She knew Amelia had a temper and held all the power in the household, but that didn't prevent Jane from asking more and more questions regarding the baby's whereabouts and the weird smells coming from certain areas of the house. With little to no answers that brought her comfort, Jane decided it was time to do something. So she reached out to the National Society for Prevention of Cruelty to Children that had a branch in Reading anonymously. They paid a visit to her home, but didn't see anything alarming. The home was clean and well-furnished. That was until they came across a six-month-old baby who looked like they were suffering from starvation. Like Child Protective Services today, the NSPCC shared their concerns and told Amelia they would be coming back in a week to check on the baby and see if there had been any improvements. Jane kept her mouth shut during the visit, but she was hoping it would scare Amelia into changing her behavior. It ended up doing the complete opposite, and within a few weeks, Amelia's murderous spree would come to an end. Steph will tell us more about the innocent lives lost after this short break. Evelina Edith Marmon, who went by Miss Scott, was a 25-year-old barmaid. She grew up on a farm but wanted more for herself and found that in Chetlam. In January 1896, she gave birth to a healthy baby girl named Doris. Although Doris was everything a mother could hope for, she was an illegitimate child, and with no law to support single mothers, she knew it wasn't a task she could take on on her own. So instead of raising her daughter right away, she decided she wanted to let someone care for Doris while she worked in hopes of one day reclaiming her child. So Evelina put an ad in the miscellaneous section of the newspaper, Bristol Times and Mirror, that read, Wanted, Respectable Woman to Take a Young Child. To her luck, an ad was placed next to hers that read, Married Couple with No Family Would Adopt a Healthy Child, Nice Home, Terms $10. This sounded like the perfect family to leave Doris with, and so Evelina reached out to Mrs. Harding from the ad. 
A few days later, she received a letter from Amelia Dyer, also known as Mrs. Harding, which said, I should be glad to have a dear baby girl, one I could bring up and call my own. We are a plain, homely people in fairly good circumstances. I don't want a child for money's sake, but the company and home comfort. I and my husband are dearly fond of children. I have no child of my own. A child with me will have a good home and a mother's love. After communicating back and forth a few times, it was clear that Mrs. Harding wasn't willing to temporarily care for Doris for $10 a week. She insisted on adopting her for a one-time $10 payment, to which Evelina reluctantly agreed. Only if she could visit Doris whenever she would like, though. Well, I'm not one to judge a woman's choice on whether or not she can raise a child, especially under certain circumstances. A child is worth more than what money can offer, but she did offer to pay for the care of Doris before being pressured into adoption. She clearly didn't want to give up her child forever. She was just in a really hard spot. But I still can't imagine selling my child. Oh, me either. How quickly did the process end up going? One week later, on March 31st, 1896, Amelia arrived in Chetland to meet Evelina and pick up Doris. Amelia was an older woman with a stocky appearance. She appeared to look more like someone's grandmother than a woman who was looking to raise a child. Even though she was older, she immediately took to Doris and seemed to be very affectionate towards her. Evelina insisted on escorting them to the Chetlam station to say goodbye for now to her four-month-old Doris, and upon arriving handed Amelia the $10 owed to her and a cardboard box of clothes for her little girl. As any mother that had to make a tough decision, Evelina dreaded the fact that she couldn't care for her daughter. To her relief, a few days later, she received a letter from Amelia telling her that all is well. Evelina replied back to her but received no response in return. That was enough to prompt Evelina to report Doris as missing to the police. On April 11, 1896, authorities showed up on Evelina's doorstep to take her to her missing daughter. Instead of being taken to the station, she was taken to the Reading Morgue, where she would find out the heartbreaking news that she wasn't there to be reunited. She was there to identify her body. You see, Amelia didn't travel back to Reading, Berkshire with Doris. She instead went to her 23-year-old daughter Polly's home in Wellesden, London. As soon as she arrived there, she immediately found some white edging tape, which was used for dressmaking, but she didn't use it for anything of that sort. Instead, she tied it twice around Doris's neck and finished it off with a knot. Doris passed away from slow asphyxiation. Amelia and Polly disposed of Doris by wrapping her in a napkin. The clothes given to them meant to keep Doris warm. They kept, sold, or even gifted them away to people. She used the money given to her to care for Doris to pay her rent. She's so heartless, my God. The way she took Doris's life was completely unnecessary and brutal. She was just a baby. She was more cruel than was even necessary. There's a special place in hell for those who decide to take a child's life. And wait, there's more. One day later, on April 1st, 1896, 13-month-old Harry Simmons was adopted by Amelia and met the same fate as Doris. Due to the lack of edging tape, Amelia removed what she had strangled Doris with and used it on him. The next day, Amelia and Polly put the bodies of both children into a carpet bag, stacked the bodies on top of each other, tied a piece of paper around the bodies with string, and threw in some bricks to weigh it down before dumping the bag into a secluded area of the River Thames. 
The bricks didn't do the job Amelia was hoping for, and eventually the bag was discovered by some local men out on the water. Prior to the discovery of Doris and Harry, another infant's body was discovered in the River Thames on March 30th. A worker was heading upstream on his boat when he noticed a brown paper parcel on the riverbank. Upon retrieving it, the bag split open, revealing the body of one-year-old Helena Fry. The river was immediately searched for more bodies, which led to an unidentified two-week-old baby boy who was found on April 8th, and another baby boy was found a couple days later on the 10th. That same afternoon, Doris and Harry were found in the carpet bag. That now amounted to five babies dumped in the river. There was a baby killer on the loose, and Reading residents were outraged and wanted answers, and so did the authorities. To the investigators' luck, the paper Doris and Harry were wrapped in had a faint address on it for Mrs. Thomas. Although Mrs. Thomas wasn't Amelia, it still pointed to an address. Amelia spent her baby farming days moving from home to home to avoid detection, and Mrs. Thomas sold her the home she was currently living in. Investigators didn't waste any time checking out that address to see what and who they would find. At the home of Amelia, they found one healthy baby and cabinets full of babies' belongings and clothing. These items immediately became evidence because there was no way all of these items belonged to one baby. The other evidence found were receipts for children's clothing, letters Amelia wrote to the infant's mothers, letters they wrote back, as well as the newspaper ads Amelia had posted. It was clear more children had indeed been in her care and their whereabouts were unaccounted for. Amelia was arrested and taken into custody. Um, yeah, there's no reason for all that baby paraphernalia and letters from mothers if there were no babies there to begin with. Lock her ass up. Serial killers often take trophies. It's clear she wasn't just doing it for the money, but enjoyed killing those babies. What happened after her arrest? Did she ever confess? Well, the trial for Amelia Dyer began on May 21, 1896, for the murder of Doris Harmon and Harry Simmons. She wasn't charged for the other murders because there was no way to link her to them, even if it was obvious based on who she targeted and where they were found. Amelia tried to plead insane, but the judge did not accept this plea. There were no signs of mental illness in Amelia, just a greedy woman with an addiction to opium and baby farming. They knew claiming she was mentally ill was a ploy she had set up to avoid suspicion and eventually a prison sentence if she was ever exposed. Even though it was a huge risk to Evelina's respectability in the community, she decided to testify against Amelia. Family of Amelia and Associates also testified against her, telling the court they were growing uneasy about her activities over the years. Her daughter Polly gave graphic evidence to the court and a man came forward who witnessed Amelia throw the bodies of children into the river. With all of these testimonies and the evidence found against her in her home, Amelia's conviction was guaranteed. So all these adults knew and said nothing? Lovely. Right? Any one of them could have gone to the police and stopped all of this. They could have saved so many babies. With even her daughter's testimony, I'm sure the trial didn't work in her favor, though. Oh, yeah. Within five minutes, the jury found Amelia Dyer guilty of two counts of murder and sentenced to death by hanging. While awaiting her execution, she filled three journals of confessions. Her daughter Polly's trial was set for June 17th, one week after Amelia's execution date. 
Even though she was subpoenaed to appear as a witness at her daughter's trial, Amelia was considered legally dead at her sentencing, and therefore any evidence she could provide could not be used in Polly's trial. All charges against Polly were eventually dropped. At 9 a.m. on Wednesday, June 10, 1896, Amelia Elizabeth Dyer was hanged by James Billington at Newgate Prison. Her last words were, I have nothing to say. You could have said, I'm sorry, and you could have given those mothers some closure. I can't believe her daughter Polly got away scot-free. I realized they had very little evidence to link the other babies to anyone, but it's heartbreaking. I mean, she should have gotten in trouble just for the Doris death in general. It sounded like all the babies in Amelia's care she was responsible for went missing. Right, but the actual number of babies Amelia was responsible for murdering isn't known, because based on how many letters were found in her home and the amount of baby clothes she kept, the number is expected to be in the hundreds. They say the apple doesn't fall too far from the tree. In this case, the saying applies. Baby farming continued with or without Amelia over the next decade. Two years after her execution, a railway worker inspecting carriages in the town of Newton Abbott found a small parcel. Upon opening it, he discovered a three-week-old baby girl. Luckily for this baby, she was found alive, just not well, due to being cold and wet. A widow Jane Hill came forward to claim the baby as hers and told authorities she paid a woman named Mrs. Stewart $12 to care for her child. It would later come out that Mrs. Stewart was Polly, Amelia's daughter. Both Polly and her father were arrested for this crime. Even though Amelia died in 1896, it's been rumored that her ghost haunted the chief warder's office for some years following her execution. This case makes me very thankful for the laws and processes people have to go through for adoption today. However, that doesn't mean there aren't children being mistreated and their needs being neglected by those who are supposed to care for them. Rather it be foster care, paternal parents, or adoption, evil people still exist and are still getting away with harming infants and children. These mothers trusted Amelia Dyer to give their children a better life, and instead she threw them away like trash. She died the same way she murdered so many before her by strangulation with a rope around her neck. Even though it didn't bring back Doris, Harry, Helena, or any of the many others, at least it got one monster off the streets of Reading. Please consider donating to Child Help. Their goal is to meet the physical, emotional, educational, and spiritual needs of abused, neglected, and at-risk children. They focus on prevention, intervention, treatment, and community outreach. Child Help programs and services help children from any situation and let them experience the life they deserve, one filled with love. The principal theme across all of their programs is to provide children with an environment of compassion and kindness. To get involved, go to childhelp.org. If you know someone who might be experiencing abuse, please call the Child Help National Child Abuse Hotline at 1-800-4-A-CHILD. That's 1-800-422-4453. To view images, information, and sources from this case, visit our website at crimeandconjure.com. Research and writing for this episode was done by Stefan Sham. Editing of this episode by Denver Fortner Productions with music by Jordan Alina. Be sure to check out our Instagram at Podcast for our question of the week. Sham, what's our conjure tip of the week? Today I want to talk about the stone sodialite. This royal blue stone is a good one to keep on you to strengthen your intuition. It helps bring order and calmness to the mind. 
It encourages rational thought, objectivity, truth, and intuition, along with verbalization of feelings. Sodalite brings emotional balance and calms panic attacks. It enhances self-esteem, self-acceptance, and self-trust. If you ever come in contact with someone and you don't know whether they're worth trusting, make sure to bring this stone with you and always trust your intuition. If you're a parent, this is a great stone to bring on tours of daycares or to interview babysitters. It'll help your intuition see past anything they might be hiding. Okay, Conjurers, we'll be back next week with another episode. Until next time, stay vigilant, Conjurers. conjurers.